This is the final in our series on the theme of resurrection. We've been working our way through the 15th chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, and I trust that, uh, like me, you've been renewed uh, and uh, encouraged in the hope that we have. Uh, The hope that comes from the fact that uh, Jesus Christ uh, is risen from the dead and his resurrection uh, gives us the guarantee that the promise of our resurrection will also be fulfilled. Uh, we've explored a bit of that, the historic, historicity of Jesus' resurrection. We've looked a bit at uh, uh, what uh, something of what uh, it will be like for us uh, in the new creation with our resurrected bodies. And uh, this last section of 1 Corinthians give us uh, an assurance again of the uh, the hope that we have even in the face of, of death. Now, our passage this morning uh, begins with another verse, which if, if we were to take it out of context, m- may lead to that wrong idea that I've already mentioned, that uh, our, our ultimate goal is to live purely spiritual or non-material uh, existence. Uh, and it's this verse 50 Uh, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, uh, nor can the perishable inherit the imperishable. Uh, A key to understanding what Paul is saying here in this verse, though, is to see this uh, parallelism that's there in the verse. Uh, He really states the same idea twice. Uh, Flesh and blood correspond to what is perishable, uh, the kingdom of God, corresponds to what is imperishable. Uh, Flesh and blood, uh, it's a reference to our bodies as they are in Adam. Adam, the man from the earth. Uh, Our bodies are perishable. They will return to the dust from which they came. Their destination is the ground. Uh, Because of sin and the curse, their destination is the tomb. Uh, whereas the kingdom of God is imperishable. The kingdom of God is permanent. It's robust. It will never be passed. It will never pass away. Why? Because it is ruled by Jesus. Jesus, the man of heaven, uh, the, the last Adam. For us and our bodies to enter the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven, the solution isn't to discard our bodies, but rather to have our bodies transformed so that they are fit for the kingdom. In C.S. Lewis's little book, The Great Divorce, uh, he recounts a dream, and uh, in the dream uh, he, he imagines himself as a, a citizen of hell who's uh, gone on a bus and uh, with other passengers they're taking a bus trip to heaven to see what they've missed. Uh, it's not meant to be a, a theological statement about whether people can go from hell to heaven or not. Uh, it's really a, a, a great story that actually highlights the, uh, the glory of uh, of heaven, the glory of the new creation. When when this busload of tourists arrive, they they're shocked to notice that it's as if they've become transparent. 
you can kind of see through them. They're, they're like ghosts in, in contrast to the solid realities of heaven. They find that um, they can't walk on the grass, or at least when they, they try, their, their feet are so feeble that they can't even bend the blades of grass. And so walking on the grass is like walking on broken glass. Uh, when when uh, C.S. Lewis tries to, to wade across a stream, he's bowled over by the current because his feet can't even be submerged in the water and the, the stream is like a fast-moving conveyor belt. The, the glory of heaven, which will transform and infuse all of the creation when it's renewed, it's too much for these bodies as they currently are, too much for us to, to bear. We, we need to be transformed so that we can bear the weight of that glory. Now, significantly also, Paul uses the word inherit uh, here rather than he could have just used the word enter. But he, he specifically uses the word inherit. To be an heir means much more than being uh, in the family. Uh, inherit speaks of having a certain status within the family. The, the heir inherited not just the possessions, the property of their father, but they also inherited the position, the position of head of the household with both the privilege but also uh, the enormous responsibility that came with that. Now the Bible speaks of us uh, both as children of God, meaning that uh, we, we've come into the family, we, we know him as our father, we've been adopted, uh, we've been brought into an intimate relationship with him as father and so we call him Abba, dear father. It also speaks of us as sons, as heirs, that's the capital S, sons. It means we have the status, the status of the firstborn. We're given a place of dignity and honour. Uh, we're restored, as we've seen, to our role as priestly rulers over all creation. We, we bear his image and we administer his authority and his grace and his goodness and his glory to all of the other creatures on earth. See what Romans 8 says. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. A person could be someone's child without being their heir, yeah, at least in the, the ancient biblical framework. But you can't be an heir, you couldn't be an heir without first being a child. You had to be in the family to then uh, receive that status. The Father's plan for us is he makes us his children in order that he might make us his heirs. The, the relational uh, position of being children provides the basis for the status 
of being fellow heirs with Christ. Now a few verses after this, he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, growing inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now hearing that, you might say to Paul, hang on, didn't you just say back in verse 17 that we actually are already present tense children and heirs? Why are we still awaiting for our adoption as sons? Well, what Paul is talking about here is not so much receiving the status, something we already do have in Christ, but here he's talking about us actually coming into the fullness of that inheritance, actually receiving that inheritance that we're entitled to as heirs. Now, Galatians chapter 4 actually gives us a, a picture of how this happened in the ancient world, in the, in the biblical um, culture, uh, and, and he's using this as a as a an image for the Galatians to understand what it is that they have received and will receive in Christ by grace. He says the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way. We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He's describing here a a transition, a, a coming of age through which the heir moves from being a child there in verse 1, to being a son. Uh, it should be a capital S there on that, that son. It's not speaking about gender. It's speaking about the position, the sonship uh, within the family. Now, in the everyday world, the example that Paul is using here, uh, the world of flesh and blood, that simply happens as a child grows up. And as they reach the appointed legal age, they automatically then come into that, that position uh, of inheritance. But in the kingdom of God, that transition happens not through a natural process of maturing. It's not, it's not through, through flesh and blood, the, the natural growth. But it is by the miraculous intervention of God in sending his son. It's through our union with him in his death and his resurrection, that we are heirs and we will be brought into our full inheritance with him and in him, uh, in union with him. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It must first be transformed. It must be clothed with immortality by being crucified with Christ, by being taken down into the grave, returned to the dust, and then raised up in newness of life and given a glory that far outweighs what it once knew. Notice how verse 53 is phrased. The perishable body must put on 
the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. This term put on, uh, it's a phrase that you would use to describe putting on your clothes. And if you think about it, clothes clothes are not uh, intrinsically part of our bodies. They're, they come from without, not from within. But they do bring a transformation to our bodies uh, because our bodies are clothed with our clothes. Um, I bet you're glad that I decided to transform my body this morning by putting on my shirt before I preach this sermon to you. Paul's uh, thinking back to the imagery that we, we saw a few weeks ago where we we saw that we are in a sense and until the resurrection we, we will be in a sense naked until our bodies are clothed with immortality, clothed with the glory that uh, is there for us. The imperishability and the immortality that we will know isn't and never actually will be something that's intrinsic to our human nature. It will only ever be a gift from him. It is uh, his own immortality. The thing about Life in the resurrection, though, is that uh, he will never again withdraw that immortality, as as he did back in Eden when he he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they uh, couldn't take from the tree of life and live forever. That's a, it's a picture of uh, him removing that clothing of his immortality from Adam and Eve. In the new creation. We will remain 100% dependent on drinking from the streams of living water that flow from the heart of Jesus. We will be 100% dependent on the, the life-giving power of the Spirit as he continues to breathe the breath of life into our nostrils. We'll be still 100% dependent on the the power of the Father who raised Christ from the dead and will be fully dependent on him to continue to give us our spiritual wisdom and revelation in our knowledge of him. We will remain in and of ourselves mortal creatures made of dust, but we will also be permanently and securely clothed in God's own immortality as we are secured uh, in Christ. Now, a, a popular idea in some uh, areas of Christian theology has been the idea of the immortality of the soul. Uh, some, some churches and uh, evangelical ministries even will, will use that phrase within their statement of faith. The immortality of the soul isn't actually a, a biblical term. Uh, it's a Greek philosophical term. That's its origins. And it's based on the idea, as we've, I keep mentioning, this idea that the body will die and be discarded and the soul or the spirit, the, the real me, will go on existing forever. Now, I, I, I kind of get the point that people are wanting to make by using that term. 
especially maybe in the context of evangelism, when, when you want to convey to someone that even when their body is dead and in the ground, they will actually continue to exist. They will still uh, come before God and will, uh, will continue uh, to, to exist forever, either uh, under God's blessing uh, or under his curse, uh, as in popular ways of phrasing, either in heaven or in hell. But uh, I think using that term actually confuses the Greek thinking with biblical thinking. It, it, it can tend to make us think of death as simply ceasing to exist, the cessation of consciousness or of biological activity. Biblically, death is not ceasing to exist. Death is to be under the curse of God, separated from his blessing, cast out from the garden, knowing only his wrath. The physical death and decay of our bodies is just an outward sign. It's a reminder of the the true death that people live in, even if their bodies are fit and healthy and walking around. Our souls, our souls are not Im- immortal any more than our bodies are. Because as I've already said, we, we are not a spirit who lives in a body who has a soul. We are integrated persons. Uh, body and soul uh, it cannot actually be separated. And God alone is the one who has immortality. Uh, if, if any creature is going to know or experience immortality, it, it can only be in right relationship with God as he clothes them in that. Thanks be to God that in Jesus Christ he has provided the way out of death and into eternal life, out of the banishment and in back into the household, out of the dusty grave and into the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned last week that the Corinthians had allowed some of the pagan thinking and spirituality to come into uh, the church and to shape their thinking. And part of it was that duality, that uh, false dichotomy between body and soul. Another aspect of this pagan religion in, involved what they called mysteries and uh, historians uh, will talk about the, these ancient uh, mystery religions because they were a, a part, a central part of what they were on about. Uh, they talked about mysteries as spiritual realities that were only accessible to those who had been initiated into a higher plane of spiritual enlightenment. Uh, they were they were secrets that only the spiritually elite could access and understand. Now the Bible also speaks of mysteries, uses that same word. But for the in the Bible it's it it's something that was for a time hidden, but now it is declared openly. Uh, it's a secret, but it, it's an open secret. God has God has opened up his heart and his mind and he has disclosed the secret things and made us privy, uh, made us know his secrets. Uh, his, 
these mysteries are not accessible just to a small elite. They're accessible to anyone, anyone who has ears to hear. That's why Paul uses this term here. He's using the terminology the Corinthians would have been very familiar with. Behold, I tell you a mystery. He doesn't say you've got to go through a certain ritual, you have to reach a certain level of spiritual enlightenment. He says, no, I'm just going to tell you. This is the mystery. It's, it's open. It's open for all to know. The truth and power of Christ's resurrection is something that is openly declared in the Gospel. All who are in Christ by faith are spiritually qualified to know it and, and empowered by the Spirit to live in the hope that it gives. And God's people now have been called to go out to every nation and to openly declare this open mystery, this secret that is now being disclosed to all that Christ is risen from the dead and we have a living hope that goes beyond this life. But as we do that, we we live in a tension. It's a tension between the, the sure hope that we have of the resurrection and the present reality of sin and death that's still very much a part of our experience. See, verse 54 tells us that we're actually still waiting for the day, the day when death will be swallowed up in victory. That means death will be truly and fully no more a part of creation, no more a part of our experience. So we're still waiting for for the fullness of that. So knowing the victory of the risen Jesus over death shouldn't give us reason to be triumphalistic, meaning we, we expect to know in this life uh, the full benefits of what we will know in the next. This, this triumphalism is partly behind uh, what's been called the name it, claim it gospel. Uh, this uh, view that says no Christian should ever be sick, no Christian should ever be poor or sad or grieving. It's, I think it's also behind the way that um, we can tend to turn up at church with a facade that everything is okay in my life. When behind it, we may be struggling with doubt and battling with temptation and fear. Uh, we might be finding it really hard, really difficult to, to love God and to, to love others. But we believe wrongly that the gospel means that we sh- we're supposed to have everything worked out in our lives here and now and be perfect. So the reality of uh, physical death, the reality of our ongoing battle with sin should be a stark reminder to us that in this life, in which we do have the status of heirs and children with Christ, we're yet to come into the fullness of that inheritance. When those that we know and love, when we ourselves become sick and die, we should know in our hearts a a holy dissatisfaction with this present life and 
and a yearning for the life to come, a yearning for the day when uh, we and all creation will be made new. Death still has a sting. And we see in uh, verse 56, uh, the, the reason death has a sting still is because of the ongoing presence of sin in our lives and in the world. The wages of sin are still death. Jesus hasn't nullified the law's decree that says the soul that sins will die. So any death that we uh, experience or witness should be a reminder to us of that, that God is the judge who will bring every person into account. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So death reminds us, it's a stark reminder that uh, the presence of sin is still here. Uh, God's, God's wrath is still upon uh, human sin and uh, the day of judgment is still to come when uh, everyone will be uh, judged by him. But at the same time, when we experience and witness death, it should be a reminder to us of Christ's victory. Because that verse uh, goes on to say, So Christ, having been offered, offered once, so it's appointed for us to die once, and so Christ has been offered, died on the cross once. Why? To, to bear the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Finally, uh, and we might say finally, because after 57 verses of uh, contending for the truth of both Christ's resurrection and our resurrection, we come now to this simple yet profoundly transformative application of all this. The hope of the resurrection should spur us on, spur us on to radical, self-sacrificial, loving service to the glory of God. How does it do that? Uh, well, uh, I've got four points of, of how it does that, reflecting on uh, everything that we've seen so far in this chapter 15. Firstly, we, we saw at the start of this chapter that the resurrection of Jesus uh, was a historical event. It was grounded in fact and it was affirmed by many, many eyewitnesses. And uh, the gospel, the gospel is news, it's the announcement of, of a fact. It's not just advice, it's not just a set of principles. A gospel is a news bulletin, a declaration of an event that has actually historically happened. This encounter that these people had with the risen Christ, it didn't cause them to hide away in caves, to withdraw from the world as they waited for his return. Instead, it did the opposite. It, it, it spurred them on and they were sent out into the world to be ambassadors of Christ and his kingdom to, 
to every nation. They proclaim the good news, the gospel, and they called people to repentance and faith. It was this open proclamation, uh, the declaration of the historical fact of the resurrection that caused them to be mocked, to be imprisoned, to be even killed, to, to cause them to not seek to save their own lives because they knew that their lives were secure, hidden with Christ in God. Now, history shows that whenever the church has boldly proclaimed both Christ's resurrection from the dead and the glorious hope of his coming again, which will mean our resurrection from the dead, the church has remained strong, even in the midst of persecutions. But wherever the church has lost sight of that, wherever they have uh, watered down these truths or even denied them, we see that the church quickly loses its power and actually becomes obscure and obsolete because the world looks at what the church is saying and says, well, you haven't got anything different to what we already have. We have hope in this life only. And if that's all you can give us, then why would we bother coming to church? Why would we bother converting to to your religion? So we're called to this open proclamation of the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ is risen, we too will rise in him. Secondly, because Christ is risen from the dead, we we saw that our faith is not futile. Uh, We we are no longer in our sins. We were told that our hope is, is not only for this life, but for the next. So faith and hope in this life will actually continue into the next. And if Faith and hope continue, so too does love. These three remain, faith, hope and love, and the greatest of these is love. We can't actually claim to have faith and hope unless it is demonstrated, unless it is working its way out of our lives through love. The object of our faith and our hope the risen Jesus, is present to us now and will be present to us in the new creation. And in the same way as our faith and hope continue on, so too our love, our expressions of love, or as he puts it, the work of the Lord, will also have a continuity between this life and the next. Our labours now will have rewards then. Jesus taught us that when when we're serving God and we feel that we are doing a thankless task or we we feel that we're not being uh, acknowledged or recognised by people or maybe uh, we feel that we're actually being criticised by others. Uh, He tells us that uh, we're not to actually look to those things. We're, We're to look to the Father who sees even in secret what we do and he will 
reward us. We can so easily look to the praise or the lack of praise from people as the measure by which we assess what we're doing. And we lose sight of the fact that we should be seeking the praise of God alone. And not because we've earned it, not because uh, uh, what we're doing is somehow earning that merit, but because we know we are beloved children of the Father in Jesus Christ and uh, a beloved child knows no greater joy than to please their Father. Thirdly, we saw that our bodies matter because uh, they will be resurrected. And so that means what we do with our bodies also matters. One of the outworkings of the Greek idea that uh, the the physical was bad and the spiritual was the only good was ironically uh, rampant sexual immorality and sensuality and uh, greed and gluttony uh, in the culture. And it was because their reasoning was, well, if the body ultimately doesn't matter, if it's just going to be discarded at the end, then it doesn't actually matter how much I trash it while I have it. So make the most of it because one day it's going to be gone. Christians are told, however, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sees our flesh and blood as good because it is a good part of his creation. He delights to make his dwelling in us as a person, including our body, and he will continue to dwell in us, in our resurrected bodies. So we're called to to live in anticipation of that time by honouring God with our bodies which really means what we do. Do we use our bodies as instruments for righteousness or instruments for sin? Do we, do we work for the Lord or do we work purely for ourselves? The flip side of that is, uh, while that is true, we cannot idolise our bodies we know that they are perishable dust. They're yet to be renewed, yet to be glorified, yet to be clothed in immortality. And I think it's, it's fascinating that in the, in the world, the culture that we live today, uh, both, uh, both here in the West where we've, we've lost that Judeo-Christian sense of hope for the resurrection or life after death, um, but I think also in cultures where uh, the religion hasn't even had that resurrection hope, where where the only hope beyond the grave is just purely a a spiritual non bodily experience, I think I think we see a worship of the body instead of understanding that our bodies are a temple of the one whom we worship. Uh, we worship our bodies ourselves. Uh, we see an indulging in sensuality, uh, especially in the West, where if this life is all there is, then you've got to make the most of it. You've got to enjoy as much of your bodily existence as you can. 
I think that idolizing of the body is is one thing that is behind the multi-billion dollar pornography industry where uh, where the body is idolized and people are stripped of their identity and their dignity as human beings and not only those who are uh, involved in pornography but also those who watch pornography uh, it, there's an idolatry that strips us of our humanity of our dignity uh, this idolatry of the body is behind our obsession and our addiction to physical beauty to youthfulness to to health and fitness um, a few centuries ago every street corner had a church on on it Today, walk around, every street corner seems to have a gym on the, on the corner. Hollywood, the media, uh, the marketing industry, they all tell us that being young and attractive, physically beautiful, is the all-important thing. Uh, that's where we're told to find our self-worth in the way we look. Uh, another multi-billion dollar industry is the cosmetic surgery industry where people will pay thousands of dollars just to have their cheekbones reshaped so they can look more beautiful or younger. Biblically, what is valued in this life is not external beauty or even youthfulness. What is valued in this life is godly wisdom that actually comes with age. God looks not at the external appearance, but at the heart. And so a heart that seeks the wisdom that comes from God, uh, springing out of the gospel hope they have in the risen Jesus, will bear this fruit of us using our bodies as instruments for God's glory. Fourthly and finally, because of this resurrection hope and because the risen Jesus has secured not only our, my hope as an individual person, but our hope as the church, as the communion of saints. It means participating in church, serving one another in the church is actually all important in this life. It's been said that the church is the only human institution that will continue into the new creation. A union as bride and bridegroom will be consummated. Currently we're in the betrothal time, the engagement phase. Then we will be fully united as one. And the church the community of God's children in Christ will continue. Forget about the, uh, the popular ideas of heaven as this place where you just go to hang out with your loved ones and your friends and your family because uh, those relationships actually won't be the ones that will define the relationships in the new creation. It will be our relationships with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ that will endure, will continue. Church, now is the place where we learn by the grace of God 
to love one another in preparation for the time when we will continue to love one another but it will no longer be hindered by our own sinfulness and our own selfishness. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See how this this call to uh, to stir one another up to love, to good works, to uh, to not giving up meeting together, would actually be robbed of its power if there wasn't that last cause. All the more as you see the day drawing near. It's the reality of the coming day that gives meaning and value to all that we do as we strive to love one another in the unity of the Spirit, as we bear with one another, as we forgive one another, as we humbly learn from and submit to one another, as we work together to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ to every nation. And as all that we do, we do to the glory of God the Father. So I suggest that we all take this final verse of 1 Corinthians 15 and make it a prayer that we pray regularly for one another and for our church. And let me do that right now. Let's pray. Our Father who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray for one another as beloved brothers and sisters that we may be steadfast, not shifting from the hope that we have in the Gospel and immovable, secure in knowing that no one is able to snatch us out of your hand. We ask that you will enable us and free us to be always abounding in your work, seeking your glory and your kingdom righteousness in all we do. We ask this because we know that nothing we do is in vain because we have a hope in Christ for both this life and the next. We look forward to the day when we will see you face to face, when all creation will be made new, when we will be clothed in immortality when we too are raised up in glory. That glory that we look forward to it isn't ours. It's the very glory of your only Son given freely to us. And so it is in his name and for his honour that we pray. Amen.